0: If you want to save your soul from hell riding on our range Then cowboy, change your ways If they are with us, you will ride Trying to catch the devil's herd Across these endless skies Yippee-yay
1: Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 6th day of January, 2008. I'd like to wish a Happy New Year to all the listeners of The Corbett Report, and remind them to visit my website, www.corbettreport.com, for a documentation list with links to all of the sources for the information used in today's episode. On the website, you'll also find links to our YouTube video channel and articles that are written by the Korver Report and other contributors. And now, it's time for the real news. This article comes from the Financial Post, January 4th, 2008, Headlined, Forget Oil, The New Global Crisis is Food. A new crisis is emerging, a global food catastrophe that will reach further and be more crippling than anything the world has ever seen. The credit crunch and the reverberations of soaring oil prices around the world will pale in comparison to what is about to transpire, Donald Cox, global portfolio strategist at BMO Financial Group, said at the Empire Club's 14th Annual Investment Outlook in Toronto on Thursday. It's not a matter of if, but when, he warned investors. It's going to hit this year hard. Mr. Cox said the sharp rise in raw food prices in the past year will intensify in the next few years amid increased demand for meat and dairy products from the growing middle classes of countries such as China and India, as well as heavy demand from the biofuels industry. The greatest challenge to the world is not $100 oil. It's getting enough food so that the new middle class can eat the way our middle class does and that means we've got to expand food output dramatically, he said. The impact of tighter food supply is already evident in raw food prices, which have risen 22% in the past year. Wheat prices alone have risen 92% in the past year, and yesterday closed at U.S. $9.45 a bushel on the Chicago Board of Trade. This article comes from the Times Online, January 5, 2008. Speed demons will meet their match on the piste. Skiers and snowboarders who love the unrestricted thrill of hurtling down alpine pistes on a sunny winter day are about to be stopped in their tracks. Switzerland is introducing speed cameras on the slopes to try to reduce the increasing number of accidents. The first such nationwide controls will treat skiers like cars on the motorway. Speeders will be caught with handheld radar devices carried by hidden personnel. Persistent offenders could be fined or have ski passes confiscated. Also this week from the Daily Mail, the 3rd of January 2008, comes this report headlined Scientists Create Machine That Knows What You Are Thinking. Scientists have developed a machine which is capable of reading our mind and revealing our most private thoughts. American researchers from Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh found that with the aid of a sophisticated scanner and computer program, they were able to determine how the brain lights up when thinking about different subjects. Using an advanced form of MRI scanner, they analyzed how the brain reacted to 10 drawings of tools and buildings. They then used a computer program to work out whether a person was thinking about a tool or a building. The researchers' analysis was found to be 97% accurate, but they went on to show that they could distinguish between two similar objects, such as two different tools, almost as successfully. Welcome to episode 27 of the Corbett Report, entitled Torture is Bad. This week we'll be dealing primarily with the idea of extraordinary renditioning. What is extraordinary renditioning? This is something that's been in the news headlines for the last few years, but it may be beneficial to take a look at what this process is and what it really means. As my listeners may or may not know, The term renditioning refers to the process of transferring a suspected criminal from the custody of one government to the custody of another so that the suspected criminal can stand a trial in the country where the suspected violations took place. This is, of course, an established practice in international relations and is usually governed by international treaties between the two governments involved in the rendition. The term extraordinary rendition, however, is relatively new, having surfaced in the early 1990s. There's a report from the Guardian Online entitled CIA's Secret Jails Open Up New Transatlantic Rift, which details how the extraordinary rendition program came into place in the wake of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, which left six people dead. CIA officers at the time were interested in detaining and questioning certain Islamic fundamentalists that they believed were complicit in international terrorism, but did not want to bring those terrorists before a U.S. court of law where U.S. intelligence sources may have been compromised. The story of the actual first extraordinary rendition comes from Richard Clark's book, Against All Enemies. Richard Clark being, of course, at the time the chief of counterterrorism on the U.S. National Security Council under the administration of President Bill Clinton. In his memoirs, he writes... Quote, extraordinary renditions were operations to apprehend terrorists abroad, usually without the knowledge of, and almost always without public acknowledgement of the host government. The first time I proposed a snatch, in 1993, the White House counsel, Lloyd Cutler, demanded a meeting with the president to explain how it violated international law. Clinton had seemed to be siding with Cutler until Al Gore belatedly joined the meeting, having just flown overnight from South Africa. Clinton recapped the arguments on both sides for Gore. Lloyd says this. Dick says that. Gore laughed and said, that's a no-brainer. Of course it's a violation of international law. That's why it's a covert action. The guy's a terrorist. Go grab his ass. End quote. Of course, as Al Gore correctly points out in that instance, this is a violation of international law, as no treaty or international agreement adequately accounts for the idea of one state rendering a suspected terrorist from a foreign country to a third state. In order to cover themselves in the event that this process was ever found to be a violation of international law, the Clinton administration merely did what all administrations do. They issued a presidential decision directive in 1995 entitled PDD 39, which reads in part, quote, If we do not receive adequate cooperation from a state that harbors a terrorist whose extradition we are seeking... We shall take appropriate measures to induce cooperation. Return of suspects by force may be effected without the cooperation of the host government, consistent with the procedures outlined in NSD 77, which shall remain in effect. End quote. What we have here is, in effect, an illegal operation being sanctified by the Presidential Decision Directive, an extra-constitutional power which does not rightfully reside in the executive, the President of the United States, but which has been used to usurp power from the Congress and the people of the United States to implement these unlawful and illegal acts. And, of course, merely calling this program illegal is a bit of a whitewash in that it does not get to the heart of the problem. The very basis for the program, the international terrorist scare created by the World Trade Center bombing in 1993, is, of course, itself a lie. And, of course, that comes from a New York Times report from October 28, 1993, entitled, Tapes Depict Proposal to Thwart Bombs Used in Trade Center Blast. That article details how the person supplying the plotters in the World Trade Center bombing was in fact an FBI informer who was going to substitute the actual explosives with harmless powder, but was called off from doing so by his FBI supervisor. Effectively, the FBI allowed the Trade Center bombing to take place right under their nose. This again goes back to the false reality of the war on terror, which is being used to undermine our basic rights and liberties. But all of these facts, reports, and documents are a bit dry and don't go to the heart of what is the issue here, which is the implementation of an illegal system for taking people from a foreign country and sending them to a third state for one purpose and one purpose only. The idea that in that third state, either the CIA or a cooperative government will conduct torture in order to extract information from the suspected terrorist." For a better idea about what this extraordinary rendition program is really about, let's turn to a British documentary entitled Mystery Flights. This documentary aired on the BBC and also CBC last year and introduces the extraordinary rendition program by focusing on the case of one British national who was extraordinarily rendered. Let's listen to the audio clip.
2: These were the months after the terrorist attack of 9-11. The world was in shock. A new fanatical enemy, Al Qaeda, was out to destroy the land of the free. You were either with them or against them. But how to tell truth from fiction? America's stopped an Al Qaeda
3: plot to explode a radioactive device. We have captured a known terrorist who was exploring a plan to build and explode a radiological dispersion device or dirty bomb in the United States.
2: Actually, Jose Padilla, the man they called the dirty bomber, was not a known terrorist. But he was a gangster, and he had converted to Islam. That was enough. The alert went out for Padilla's co-plotters.
4: Padilla's where he needs to be. The coalition we put together has hauled in over 2,400 people. There's, 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 uh, there's just a full-scale manhunt
2: on it. The dragnet reached Karachi in Pakistan, where a British resident from North London was about to fly home. Britain had been Binyam Mohammed's home for seven years after his family had fled Ethiopia's civil war. He lived in Kensal Rise, went to college and joined a sports club. Until, tired of waiting for asylum and a British passport, he borrowed a friend's, his first mistake. And then went to Pakistan and Afghanistan to learn about Islam. That was his second. In Karachi airport, he was arrested. His older brother's a doctor in the US. He won't show his face. Links with an Al Qaeda suspect are too risky. One day, he says, the FBI came to him and asked, did he or his brother Binyam know the dirty bomber Padilla?
0: They show me a picture of Jose Padilla, if I know him, and he's a bad guy. I said, I'm definitely sure he doesn't, and I don't think he knows who Jose Padilla is.
2: But baby brother, Binyam Muhammad was now a terrorist suspect. He'd been to Afghanistan. And in 2002, that, with his borrowed passport, was enough to tip him through to the dark side, a world with no law and no rights. Binyam's account, shown to me by his doctor brother, tells how interrogators tried to coach him to frame Jose Padilla. It's read by an actor.
0: They want me to testify in court. They have no witness. And they have told me they're preparing me and others for their use and giving us information on the accused, which we know nothing of. One of the names is Jose Padilla.
2: When Binyam refused, he says he was hooded, shackled and put on a plane. This was his first extraordinary rendition. that CIA-speak for flying a prisoner with no legal process to be interrogated more effectively abroad using torture. For that, Morocco is notorious. Clive Stafford Smith is his lawyer.
4: He was taken by the Americans to Morocco, and he was taken there for a purpose. And he's not Moroccan, so there's only one purpose, and that's for him to go through a little bit of extraordinary interrogation.
2: The Gulf Stream took Binyam on his first rendition to Tamara Prison. One day, he says, a woman claiming to be Canadian came in.
0: I'm giving you a last chance to think about cooperating with the US, said Sarah. If you don't talk to me, then the Americans are getting ready to carry out a torture. They're going to electrocute you, beat you, and rape you. Three men came in with black masks that only showed their eyes. It was then that the circle of torture began. One of them took my penis in his hand and began to make cuts. They must have done this 20, 30 times maybe in two hours.
2: Eighteen months of this and other torture, he says, brought him to breaking point.
0: They kept reading out to me and saying, if I could say this story as we read it, you will just go to court and all this torture will stop. I could not take any more of this torture and I eventually repeated what was read out to me. They told me to say that I had been with bin Laden five or six times. Of course, that was false. They told me to say I had told bin Laden about places that should be attacked. That was false too. They told me to say I had sat with Osama bin Laden's top people. That was a lie too.
1: And needless to say, Binyam Mohammed's case is not an unusual one. Unfortunately, it's quite typical of the over 1,000 flights that have been flown by the CIA to secret detention centers where suspected terrorists are tortured until they confess to the crime that their interrogators want to hear them confess to. Another rather straightforward example of this process is in the story of Mayor Arar. Mayor Arar will undoubtedly be familiar to my Canadian listeners as one of the most famous Canadian examples of the extraordinary rendition process. Mr. Arar, a wireless technology consultant who was born in Syria and became a Canadian citizen in 1991, was nabbed by the U.S. authorities at New York's JFK airport on suspicion of being a terrorist. In October 2007, Mr. Arar appeared before the House Judiciary Subcommittee on the Constitution's Civil Rights and Civil Liberties to testify about what happened to him. Let's listen to some excerpts from Mr. Arar about his harrowing story.
5: Forgive me for not being with you in person. I am forced to appear by video link because the US government prevents me from coming there. Even though five years have passed since my original detention and I have never been charged with any crime in any country. Let me be clear, I am not a terrorist. I am not a member of Al-Qaeda or any other terrorist group. I am a father, a husband, and an engineer. I am also a victim of the immoral practice of extraordinary rendition. I'm here today to tell you about what happened to me and how I was detained and interrogated by the United States government, transported to Syria against my will, tortured, and kept there for a year. I'm here today because I believe it is my moral duty as a human being to help prevent what happened to me from happening to others. In September 2002, I was returning to Canada for work from a family trip to Tunis, where my wife and children stayed behind with my ailing father-in-law. My return flight to Montreal connected through JFK Airport in New York. Upon viewing my valid Canadian passport, an immigration officer pulled me aside and took me to be fingerprinted and photographed. I asked to make a phone call, but my request was denied. Some time later, officers from the FBI and the New York Police Department arrived and began to interrogate me. My repeated requests for a lawyer were all denied. I was told that I had no right to a lawyer because I was not an American citizen. The interrogation that first day lasted about eight hours, during which I was insulted and humiliated, and continued the next day, at the end of which they asked me to volunteer to go to Syria. Of course, I refused, and I told them that I wanted to go to Canada. I was then taken to the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn where I was kept for the next 10 days. After five days of repeated requests, I was finally allowed to make a brief phone call to alert my family of my whereabouts. I was taken out of my cell and into a room where about seven people or seven officials were waiting for me. They questioned me for about six hours until three in the morning and that was despite my repeated requests for my lawyer to be present and despite my request to see a judge. They mainly asked me why I did not want to go to Syria. I clearly and repeatedly told them that I was afraid I would be tortured there. My pleas fell on deaf ears. On October 8th at 3 in the morning I was awakened and told that they had decided to remove me to Syria. When I told them again about my fears of being tortured, they told me they were not the office that these with the torture convention. By then it was becoming more and more clear to me that I was being sent to Syria for the purpose of being tortured. I was put on a private jet and flown to Jordan then driven to Syria, and eventually ended up at the Palestine branch of the Syrian military intelligence on October 9th. There I was put in a dark underground cell that was more like a grave. It was three feet wide, six feet deep, and seven feet high. Life in that cell was hell. I spent 10 months and 10 days In that grave during the early days of my detention I was interrogated and physically tortured I was beaten with an electrical cable and threatened with a metal chair the tire and electric shocks I was forced to falsely confess that I had been to Afghanistan when I was not being beaten I was put in a waiting room so that I could hear the screams of other prisoners. The cries of the women still haunt me the most. After 374 days of torture and wrongful detention, I was finally released to Canadian embassy officials on October 5, 2003. This past few years have been a nightmare for me, since my return to Canada. My physical pain has slowly healed, but the cognitive and psychological scars from my ordeal remain with me on a daily basis. I still have nightmares and recurring flashbacks. I have lost confidence in myself and I live in constant fear of flying and being kidnapped again. I am not the same person that I was. I have come to accept this as part of my new life, but I want to make sure that no one else has to go through what I have gone through. In sharing my story and my experiences with you today, I hope that the effects of torturing a human being will be better understood. I also hope to convey how fragile our human rights have become and how easily they can be taken from us by the same governments that have sworn to protect them.
1: Mr. Orar's statement at the end of that clip is something that I could not have said better myself, and may indeed be one of the central themes of the Corbett Report. The Extraordinary Rendition Program and its development is an extremely important story, but one that has been covered in great detail in other journalistic mediums, from the Internet to corporate-controlled media, and I suggest that all my listeners conduct their own research into the program. For listeners who are interested in finding out more information about the program, I suggest you do your own research into victims like Binyam Mohammed, Meir or other victims like the German citizen Khalid al-Mazri. It's also valuable to take a look at how this story was broken in the media by reporters like Stephen Gray, And for an interview with Stephen Gray about his book, Ghost Flights, I suggest you go to Google Video. Again, the link to the CBC interview with Stephen Gray about his book can be found from my website, www.corbettreport.com. For more detailed information about the program itself, I suggest you also check out the Council of Europe, who released a report in 2007 detailing the secret CIA prisons operating in Europe in Romania and Poland, to be precise, between 2002 and 2005, and which details evidence suggesting that more than 1,245 secret CIA flights were conducted through European airspace over the last several years. Again, all of that is important information, but let's move on to think about what this information really means. As I say, this story has been breaking in the media over the last few years, and has reached something of a peak recently as more information has come out about the interrogation techniques used by the CIA in these black sites or secret prisons. So it's no surprise, then, that journalist Brian Ross has come along with ABC News to tell the story of a former CIA agent named John Carriaco, who has gone public about the secret CIA prisons and the interrogation techniques that were used within them. Let's take a listen to Brian Ross's report from December tenth, two 2007. Kiriakou, now retired, was a team leader for the
3: CIA-FBI squad that went to Faisalabad, Pakistan, in March 2002 and captured the first major Al-Qaeda figure, Abu Zubaydah, a logistics chief, who helped plan the 9-11 attacks.
6: We knew that he was the biggest fish that we had caught. We knew he
3: was full of information, and uh, and we wanted to get it. Zubaydah, seen in this exclusive photo taken at the time, was barely alive, shot three times by Pakistani police, and the U.S. was desperate to keep him alive. With Zubaydah in his room the night of the raid were two other men, bomb makers, one of whom was killed, another seriously injured.
6: The room where, where he was when the raid began had a table in it and on the table Abu Zubaydah and two other men were building a bomb the soldering iron was still hot and they had the plans for uh, for a school on the table so we knew that there were uh, immediate threats that he could uh, he could help us with
3: but Kiriakou says it took a special CIA interrogation team
6: to crack Zubaydah he was friendly uh, and he was willing to talk about philosophy he was unwilling to give us any any actionable intelligence
3: CIA officials in Washington gave the go-ahead Kiriakou says for White House approved interrogation techniques including waterboarding a technique demonstrated here in which a prisoner is tied down with feet raised and is made to feel he is drowning something Kiriakou himself went through in training it's a wholly unpleasant experience
0: what is
6: it like Uh, you feel like you're choking or drowning there's some Cellophane or material over your mouth and then they pour water on this cellophane. Uh, you can't breathe and it feels like the water is going down your throat and then you begin choking. It, it uh, induces the gag reflex. How long did you last? About five seconds. <laughs> Would you call it torture? You know, at the time, no. These guys hate us more than they love life. Back into history, um, I think I've changed my mind. And I think that uh, waterboarding is probably something that we shouldn't be in the
3: business of doing. Although he was not present, Kiriakou says he knows Zubaydah was one of only two al-Qaeda leaders subjected to waterboarding. And was it successful? It was. What happened as a result of that? He resisted.
6: He, He was able to withstand the waterboarding for quite some time. And by that I mean probably 30, 35 seconds.
3: That's quite some time.
6: Which was quite some time. A short time afterwards, in the next day or so, he told his interrogator that Allah had visited him in his cell during the night and told him to cooperate because his cooperation would make it easier on the other brothers who had been captured. And from that day on, he answered every question, just like I'm sitting here speaking to you. So in your view, the waterboarding broke him? I think it did, yes. And did it make a difference in terms of... It did. The threat information that he provided disrupted... A number of attacks,
3: maybe dozens of attacks. President Bush has cited the interrogation of Zubaydah as one of the victories in the war on terror. Zubaydah was questioned using these procedures and soon he began to provide information on key Al Qaeda operatives. Zubaydah's information helped lead the CIA to an even bigger al-Qaeda leader, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the planner of the 9-11 attacks, who officials tell ABC News was the second person subjected to waterboarding.
6: I remember uh, one of the agency's senior-most leaders saying, this is is an awesome responsibility that we have to act within the confines of the law. This isn't going to be something that's being done willy-nilly, that people are going to be trained in
3: it. And we have to follow this to the letter. Which Kiriakou says required specific permission from the top CIA official for each step, even an initial slap on the belly. The deputy director for operations says, yes, you can slap him. The
6: cable goes out, they slap him, send in a cable again saying, we slapped him and this is what happened. And if that works, great. If that doesn't work, well, maybe we shake him by the lapels the next time. And you go through the whole process again.
3: In the case of Abu Zubaydah, did you feel he was broken emotionally, that he had felt he'd lost the battle? Yes. Yes, I think he did feel that way.
6: And in the end, it's funny, a, a former colleague of mine asked him during a conversation one day, what would you do if we decided to let you go one day? And he said, I would kill every American and Jew I could get my hands on. And he said, it's nothing personal. You're a nice guy, but this is who I am.
3: If somebody else was caught today, wouldn't you want to use the same techniques? I think that I would be very tempted to use the same techniques. In, words, like, in your view, they they do work.
6: I, yes, they do work. No doubt about that. But, but like a lot of Americans, I think I, I, I'm involved in this, this internal intellectual battle with myself, weighing the idea that waterboarding may be torture versus the quality of information that we that we often get after using the waterboarding technique. And I struggle with it, I think, like a lot of people do, where, like I said earlier, we're Americans and we're better than this and we shouldn't be doing this kind of thing.
1: Wrong, Mr. Carriaco. Americans are not having the debate with themselves whether torture is justified. And also, wrong, Mr. Carriaco. Torture is not a valuable interrogation technique. But what would we expect from a former CIA agent like John Cariacco? And former is never former when it comes to intelligence agencies. And of course, this report is filed to us by Brian Ross, and listeners to The Corbett Report might remember him and his FBI shilling in episode 18 of The Corbett Report. There are so many ways to deconstruct this whitewash that it's almost difficult to know which one to choose. One might, for instance, look at this article from ABC News from December twelfth, two 2007, entitled CIA Destroyed Tapes Despite Court Order, which goes on to detail how Abu Zubaydah's interrogation was indeed the interrogation not only featured in that report about why waterboarding is such a good thing, but also one of the tapes that were destroyed by the CIA in the current fiasco, which they were court-ordered not to destroy interrogation techniques from Guantanamo Bay, and yet have indeed destroyed those tapes. Interesting to note that Brian Ross's report came out on December 10th about why waterboarding was such a good thing and saved so many lives, and this report about CIA destroying the tapes of the interrogation came out two days later. Or you can look at this report from WashingtonPost.com, which was featured in the Real News section of the Corbett Report a couple of weeks ago, headlined FBI-CIA Debate Significance of Terror Suspect, in which it's revealed that, quote, some FBI agents and analysts say that he, Zubaydah, is largely a loudmouthed and mentally troubled hotelier whose credibility dropped as the CIA subjected him to a simulated drowning technique known as waterboarding and to other enhanced interrogation measures. End quote again showing that the myth that the CIA and the White House is trying to put out about Zubaida and other terror suspects who have been exposed to extraordinary renditioning and torture are somehow key to disarming these ticking time bomb scenarios. Or one could attack the almost cartoonish way in which Mr. Carriaco describes these interrogations, as if what we're really dealing with here is a slap to the belly or shaking a man by the lapels, as if this is the real issue and not subjecting a man to a process like waterboarding. This cartoonish outlook is reinforced by statements like these people hate us more than they love life, which is a way, of course, of getting us to equate them with demons or monsters or barbarians, animal-like people that don't deserve human rights. These cartoon politics of these monstrous terrorist masterminds, who are always inches away from plotting some devastating attack, is self-evidently ridiculous. But people who want to resort to torture always use the ticking time bomb scenario to justify their proclivities. For an example of this cartoon politics tendency, let's listen to a clip from the Republican presidential debate of May fifteenth, 2007. We're going to listen to a clip from The Daily Show that aired the next day, May sixteenth, two 2007, in which Jon Stewart makes fun of the ridiculous ticking time bomb scenario, ...that the debate moderator, Britt Hume, poses to the Republican candidates. But
3: then
4: suddenly, in the middle of the debate...
3: three shopping centers near major U.S. cities have been hit by suicide bombers. Hundreds are dead, thousands injured. A fourth attack has been averted.
4: Go on!
3: The attackers were captured off the Florida coast and taken to Guantanamo Bay... Where they are being questioned, U.S. intelligence believes that another larger attack is planned and could come at any time.
4: What an exciting way to present the complex issue of terrorism and torture by stealing the far-fetched plot of a TV show you've seen. (laughs) I can't wait for Brit uh, Brit Hume's powerful gay rights hypothetical. You're a straight man who needs a place to live. Two women have offered you space. (laughs) But to do so, you must pretend to be homosexual. Keep in mind, your landlord will only let you live there if you're gay. Now... (laughs) No matter what you say, he will interpret everything you say as heterosexual innuendo. Mitt Romney, what do you do? What do you do? (laughs) But, of course, the candidates took the bait. American lives have been lost. We know there's going to be another attack. People on the other side have got a nuclear weapon. A ticking bomb. Those terrorists are going to attack. When we go under, Western civilization goes under. We may have to, in fact, strike. I'm looking for Jack Bauer. (laughs) Oh, my God. I just figured out the problem with the Republican Party. The country they want to run is fictional.
1: As usual, Jon Stewart makes a laughing matter out of a very profound and very real truth. Namely, that we are being presented with a fictional reality in which we are being forced into these ethical dilemmas which do not exist in real life. The ticking time bomb scenario is something that you only see in shows like 24 with Jack Bauer. And it's interesting to note how this is not simply a Republican phenomenon, as John Stewart would assert jokingly, but absolutely ingrained in party politics of the left and the right. And for an example of that, let's take a listen to ex-president Bill Clinton on the Meet the Press show with Tim Russert from October 2007, in which Bill Clinton gives a wink and a nod to those intelligence agents involved in torture by invoking the Jack Bauer scenario.
4: You know, there's a one in a million chance that you might be alone somewhere and you're Jack Bauer on 24. That's the Jack Bauer example, right? It happens every season with Jack Bauer, but in the real world, it doesn't happen very much. If you have a policy which legitimizes this, it's a slippery slope and you get in the kind of trouble we've been in here with Abu Ghraib, with Guantanamo, with lots of other examples. And uh, I'm not even sure what I said is right now. I think what happens is, the honest truth is that Tim Russert, Bill Clinton, people filming this show, if we were the Jack Bauer person and it was six hours to a bomb or whatever, you don't know what you would do, and you have to... But I think what our policy ought to be is to be uncompromisingly opposed to terror, I mean to torture, And that if you're the Jack Bauer person, you'll do whatever you do, and you should be prepared to take the consequences. And I think the consequences will be imposed based on what turns out to be the truth.
1: Perhaps you're starting to notice a consistent element in this cartoon politics wonderland of ticking time bomb scenarios. And that common element is the hero of the fictional TV show 24, Jack Bauer. Now, I'm probably going to get a lot of angry emails from my listeners for saying this, but 24 is, of course, nothing more than neocon propaganda designed to cast torture in a positive light. Some inkling of that comes from this article from PrisonPlanet.com, headlined, Is 24 Propaganda? Is the Pope Catholic? It reads in part, quote, "In June 2006, Secretary of Homeland Security Michael Chertoff joined a panel of 24 cast and crew members at a Heritage Foundation event that was moderated by none other than Hillbilly Heroin Popping Neocon Talk Show Walrus Rush Limbaugh. The conference also featured numerous self-described national security experts and even Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas." The scope of the event was supposedly to discern if 24 was like real counterterrorism efforts, which is like making the argument that Teen Wolf is an accurate portrayal of the NBA. Everyone knows 24 is overhyped and overblown, but that's not the point of this debate. The more telling aspect of this visit was when Chertoff embraced and praised the actions of the characters fictionalized in the show as an example of the kind of dedication Homeland Security should be showing towards fighting terrorism— including presumably season one's patriotic scene where our hero, Bauer, cuts off a villain's head with a hacksaw. Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld have both publicly praised the show as one of their favorites, but to have Chertoff give the opening speech in an event that used the popularity of 24 as PR for the War on Terror provides no clearer conclusion than the fact that the Bush administration loves 24 because it feeds the fear. End quote. A more thorough look at the ways that hit mainstream TV shows are being used to glorify torture techniques comes from the humanrightsfirst.org website, and I suggest you follow the link from my website to the Human Rights First website entitled Primetime Torture, which dissects several mainstream TV shows and scenes that involve torture as a vital tool in the interrogation of terrorist suspects. But don't take my word for it. And don't take the word of an organization like Human Rights first. How about this report from CNN News?
7: It's a TV series seen around the world, but critics say it may be encouraging U.S. troops to engage in torture. Let's go to CNN's Carol Costello. She's in New York with this story. What's going on, Carol? Oh, you know, Wolf, it's hard to wrap your mind around a TV show influencing professional soldiers. But there are some who say it is and it's dangerous. And an advisory to our viewers, although 24 is a fictional TV show, the images from the program we're including in this report might disturb some of you. Torture as a tool. It's used often and effectively in the Fox TV counterterrorism drama 24. Four CCs. That's 24's good guy torturing his own brother. Jack Bauer, the tough, sensitive, undercover operative, justifies his actions to save America from Islamic extremists who have just detonated a nuclear bomb in Los Angeles. That the fictional hero would torture is disturbing to human rights first. It worries American soldiers want to be like Jack. Why do you suppose a soldier in Iraq would want to be like Jack Bauer?
4: Well, Jack Bauer is very seductive. He's a hero. He's always right. He always wins. He saves the day in the end.
7: And while that sounds far-fetched, Ken Robinson, a CNN national security analyst who served in special operations units, including the CIA, says 24 is becoming a problem.
4: The United States military is concerned about it because uh, they've started receiving evidence that soldiers in the field have been impacted by it downrange in Iraq utilizing uh, techniques which they've seen on 24 and then taking them into a environment in the interrogation booth.
7: Fox declined to talk with us but one of 24's co-executive producers in a podcast interview with TVWeek.com did respond.
4: One would think that their, their training would be far more extensive in the real world and they'd understand that this is a heightened reality.
7: And from Kiefer Sutherland, the actor who portrays Jack Bauer,
3: there hasn't been a torture sequence that my character has been involved with, that there isn't some kind of a negative repercussion whether it's emotional.
7: Still, Danzik's group and a general from West Point went to meet with 24's writers to get the show to depict torture in a more realistic way. To show the audience such tactics often don't work, are against the Geneva Convention and hence have consequences. Danzik is hopeful a change is in the works.
4: Help me!
7: I'm telling you, those things are hard to watch at times. We did get this statement from the Department of Defense. It tells us our policy is to treat detainees humanely. Our men and women who handle detaining operations are professionals. They understand the difference between a TV show and reality. Back to you, Wolf. All right, thanks, uh, Carol.
1: In fact, this 24 comparison has become so much a part of the political rhetoric, whether as a talking point from on high or simply because it is part of the zeitgeist. It's important to step back for a moment and think that this fictional world of torture and ticking time bombs that's being created around us has very real implications in the real world. There are the iconic photographs that have emerged from Abu Ghraib, in which U.S. servicemen subjected detainees to humiliating treatment. But it's important to note that those photographs do not represent the entire story of Abu Ghraib. For that, I recommend that you read the Taguba Report from Major General Antonio Taguba, who investigated the torture at Abu Ghraib and discovered there were a lot more disturbing incidents than those that were recorded on camera including the practice of breaking chemical lights and pouring the phosphoric liquid on detainees, threatening detainees with a charged 9mm pistol, pouring cold water on naked detainees, beating detainees with a broom handle and a chair, sodomizing a detainee with a chemical light and perhaps a broomstick, among other horrendous acts. Of course, in that case, the lowly servicemen were subjected to court-martial for their actions, where the people at the very top of the system, including the Secretary of Defense, got off completely scot-free for their part in condoning this type of torture. For an example of that, I suggest you follow the link from my website, www.corbettreport.com, to hear John Yu, the White House counsel, who is on the record saying that if the president deems that he has to torture somebody, including by crushing the testicle of the person's child, there is no law to stop him, no treaty, and nothing that Congress can do about it. The president, in his opinion, has the power to inflict any torture the president deems fit on the terror suspect. These horrific and, to any sane person, unthinkable acts of torture go to the very heart of the problem of what is wrong with torture. Even if you believe the cartoon fairy tale of the ticking time bomb and the evil, dastardly terrorist who won't talk unless he's tortured, there can be no doubt that the only thing that torture produces are false claims of guilt. For an excellent example of that, take a look at this article from Prison Planet. KSM confessed to targeting bank, founded after his arrest. This deals with the case of KSM Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the supposed mastermind of 9-11, upon whose testimony much of the 9-11 commission report was based. After years of keeping his testimony classified, the government finally released a heavily redacted testimony, which was supposed to convince the public that KSM masterminded the 9-11 attacks from A to Z, but which in fact revealed ridiculous holes in the story including the fact that KSM confessed to plotting terrorist attacks against the Plaza Bank in Washington state, despite the fact that the Plaza Bank was not founded until three years after KSM's arrest. Of course, ridiculous holes in the entire testimony like that were not focused on by the mainstream media, but can be found in reports like that one from PrisonPlanet.com. And just goes to show the utter unreliability of torture techniques. But one might ask, why has torture arisen so much in this supposed war on terror? What is the ultimate goal of using torture as an interrogation technique? Well, the answer might be found in this bone-chilling article from the Sunday Times, December 2, 2007. U.S. says it has a right to kidnap British citizens. Quote, America has told Britain that it can kidnap British citizens if they are wanted for crimes in the United States. A senior lawyer for the American government has told the Court of Appeal in London that kidnapping foreign citizens is permissible under American law because the U.S. Supreme Court has sanctioned it. The admission will alarm the British business community after the case of the so-called NatWest 3, bankers who were extradited to America on fraud charges. More than a dozen other British executives, including senior managers at British Airways and BAE Systems, are under investigation by the U.S. authorities and could face criminal charges in America. Until now, it was commonly assumed that U.S. law permitted kidnapping only in the extraordinary rendition of terrorist suspects. The American government has for the first time made it clear in a British court that the law applies to anyone, British or otherwise, suspected of a crime by Washington. And here we see the confluence of all the points in the war on terror that's being fed to us by the propaganda machine. The war on terror has nothing to do with the CIA-created and funded Al-Qaeda. It has nothing to do with keeping the world safe from another 9-11. It has everything to do with you and me. The entire war on terror apparatus that has been building up over the last several years is being turned towards the citizenry of the countries who are building this torture-condoning police state. We are the real targets in all of this. And you will never come to that conclusion unless you question the fundamental lie of this police state, nine eleven. If you believe that 19 men armed with box cutters, led by a man on dialysis in a cave halfway around the world, armed with a satellite phone and a laptop, committed the most sophisticated penetration of the most heavily defended airspace in the world, and were amazingly successful including getting NORAD to stand down that morning, or getting the drill set up with planes crashing into buildings at the exact same time that it actually happened, or getting World Trade Center Building 7 to spontaneously collapse directly into its own footprint at freefall gravitational speed despite not having been hit by any plane, then you will eventually be forced to debate the tenets of this torture-condoning police state on its own terms, that of the War on Terror. If you realize that there are terrorists in the world, but whenever a major act of terror happens, it's almost always linked back to the intelligence agency puppeteers who are making things happen behind the scenes, you will realize the only way to expose and stop this police state is to press 9-11 truth. The war on terror is a lie. Extraordinary rendition is kidnapping. Torture is bad. Bad. I am your host, James Corbett. Thank you for joining me. Join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report.
2: Caps on judges of ours Everyone's a prostitute Everyone's a prostitute No silver disobedience No silver disobedience no
5: Sharing my story and my experiences with you today, I hope that the effects of torturing a human being will be better understood. I also hope to convey how fragile our human rights have become and how easily they can be taken from us
7: by the same governments that have sworn to protect them.